Biography and Sound was a radio documentary series that aired on NBC from 1954-1958. It was also sponsored by the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. It featured the lives and works of various noble figures from history, literature, music, sports, and other fields. Each episode was hosted by a different narrator and included interviews, speeches, music, and sound effects. One of the episodes was dedicated to Thornton Wilder, the American writer who won three Pulitzer Prizes and a National Book Award for his novels and plays. The episode was titled Thornton Wilder, Keeper of the Time Capsule, and it aired on March 27, 1956. It explored Wilder's life, career, and philosophy, as well as his influence on other writers and artists. And I'd like to take a moment and give you a little bit of background on Wilder. Thornton Wilder was born in 1897 in Madison, Wisconsin, and died in 1975 in Hamden, Connecticut. He's probably best known for his plays such as Our Town, The Skin of Our Teeth, and The Matchmaker, which explored the universal themes of human nature, love, death, and destiny. He also wrote novels such as The Bridge of San Luis Rey, The Woman of Andros, and The Eighth Day, which are set in different historical and cultural contexts. He was influenced by his travels and studies in Europe, Asia and Latin America, and by his interest in classical literature and philosophy. He was a versatile and innovative writer who experimented with different forms and styles. Now, Biography and Sound and the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service presents Thornton Wilder, Keeper of the Time Capsule. This is Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program. My name is John Lovering. And I thank you for listening. Biography in Sound. Keeper of the time capsule, Thornton Wilder. We all know that something in the world is eternal. It ain't houses. It ain't names. It ain't earth. It ain't even the stars. Everybody knows in their bones that something in the world is eternal, and that something has to do with human beings. Our Town, Act Three. Author, Thornton Wilder. Voice, Thornton Wilder. Throughout 30 years of Pulitzer Prizes, successful plays, best-selling novels, acclaim, controversy, and criticism, Thornton Wilder has been consistent in only one respect. He considers himself a teacher. Writer of plays, plays of symbolism, plays of the spectacular, plays of farce, author of novels of every description, that's the way it goes with Thornton Wilder. Thornton Wilder, keeper of the time capsule, another biography in sound. And I'm Garson Kamen. You may know Thornton Wilder as the author of that wild, the skin of our teeth, of the warm, our town. But do you know Thornton Wilder, the many-sided man? Thornton Wilder, the screenwriter, teacher, linguist, archaeologist? He can type and take shorthand. 
write music, play the piano. He's an introvert and an extrovert. He was a good soldier twice. Pulitzer Prizes, The Bridge of San Luis Rey, Our Town, The Skin of Our Teeth. Novels, five. Plays, five. One actors, many. Thornton Wilder. Born April 17th, 1897. Present address, 50 Deepwood Drive, New Haven, Connecticut. Let's start there. Our house. Oh, my, we're in our 26th year there now. It's built on the edge of a precipice. That means it's rock, and there's oak trees. So here we are, perched on the edge of this rock, overlooking the city of New Haven. Good weather, we can see to the sound. It, it seems to make people feel at home. Isabel Wilder, his sister, who can also tell you that Thornton seems to make people feel at home. Thornton is certainly an, an introvert, uh, but the dominating characteristic is, uh, is his extraordinary outgoing warmth. He's so alive and he's always in motion. And he has very extraordinary hands that make people feel he must be a musician or an artist. And they're always in motion. His, his face is, I think one would say, a very strong face. And again, always, always in motion. He has this extraordinary laugh. Uh, there's a sound of it, but it's on his face. He has big bushy eyebrows. And uh, his eyes are blue and fairly deep-set. And with these bushy eyebrows, it makes them more deep-set. He's a person so outgoing, so generous, that whether it's an idea or a good mood or a good day, he just is overwhelmed with it, and he sends it out radiating to you, too. So sometimes I, I say, oh, look at the house, it's just rocking. It's just rocking so much is going on. Yes, bushy eyebrows, thinning gray hair, gray mustache on a full, sensitive face. He's a short man, but well-built and always in a hurry. Theodore Keller, Thornton's fellow housemaster at Lawrenceville School. I can see him now, coming down the village street with a book tucked under his arm, almost scurrying. He was in such a hurry to get someplace. That place might have been a class, but might have been an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody. might have been a visit to the village sugar shop. Or it might have been a conversation with anyone of his many friends around the circle. As he walked, his head was almost always held high. And he might make you think of a uh, little terrier, uh, excited, eager to find out some new bits of information. Bits of information. The food that Thornton Wilder must have for his novels and plays. For these bits of information, he will travel anywhere, meet everyone. At the University of Chicago, he taught the humanities. But Thornton Wilder knew that the humanities are outside the loop, as well as inside the textbook. Professor Elder Olson remembers... Wilder was a man who lived what he thought an exceedingly adventurous life. He had a great respect for greatness of all kinds... This would lead him into what might at times seem very strange company. For example, he was delighted, he told me one night, when he had dinner with a group of gangsters in Chicago. They were members of the Capone gang, and actually Capone himself may have been present. But at any rate, I, I thought this very odd in an up-and-coming novelist and uh, a rather conservative man himself. 
What delighted him, however, was discovering the uh, uh, singular naivete and humanity of these persons, uh, unexpected as it might be uh, to the rest of us. And uh, I remember, uh, roughly and generally, that he managed to give a fairly good account of the kinds of things that, in his view, made them tick as a criminal order. Nor uh, were his adventures restricted to things like this. He was always excited by being thrown into the company of persons he admired. He was immensely pleased at being able to have dinner on one occasion with Mary Pickford and waxed very enthusiastic on the subject. On another occasion with uh, Peggy Hopkins Joyce. On another occasion during the Second World's Fair of Chicago, he uh, carted Edna St. Vincent Millay about in a gin rickshaw, acting himself as rickshaw man. He has hundreds of friends, friends who are in the social register or on the police blotter or just plain ordinary people who would like to stay out of both. But why? Why are there so many sides to this man? All these sides, these talents, hobbies, and interests. They mix, smolder, boil, and then boil over into a theme that runs out and seeps into Thornton Wilder's writing and thinking. You'll find it in a speech in our town, Act One. It goes like this. They've asked a friend of mine what they should put in the cornerstone for people to dig up a thousand years from now. Of course, they've put in a copy of the New York Times and a copy of Mr. Webb's Sentinel. We're putting in a Bible, a copy of the Constitution of the United States, and a copy of William Shakespeare's plays. You know, Babylon once had two million people in it. And all we know about them is the names of the kings and some copies of wheat contracts and sales of slaves. Yes, every night all those families sat down to supper, and the father came home from his work, and smoke went up the chimney, same as here. So I'm going to have a copy of this play put in the cornerstone, so the people a thousand years from now will know a few simple facts about it. More than the Treaty of Versailles and the Lindbergh flight, see what I mean? So people a thousand years from now, this is the way we were in the provinces north of New York at the beginning of the 20th century. This is the way we were in our growing up and in our marrying and in our living and in our dying. Mr. Wilder is an early riser, a taker of long walks. But you don't formulate an outlook like that while strolling along the street. Some say you're born with it. Some say it has to be there in someone very close to you. His father had an enormous influence on him. And also our mother. Our mother had the same kind of excited, enthusiastic curiosity uh, about not only being alive and what the world held, but especially for music and art, for all that could be learned and seen in Europe and for languages, and especially poetry. And the stories told of us that Mrs. Wilder, who always said there never was time enough for everything she wanted to do, wanted to learn, had four children, she said, all the same age. And on bright afternoons, when we had to be aired, 
I've been told this by a neighbor. Mother would be seen with our older brother just toddling, hanging on to the baby carriage. And Thornton sitting up at one end. My sister Charlotte was old enough to be sitting up, and I was just barely sitting up. Still a baby, asleep at the other end of the big old-fashioned baby carriage. And at the same time, Mother had a book of poetry he was reading. Thornton's father, Amos Parker Wilder. Occupation, reporter, until he bought a newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. As leg man and editor, Amos knew what the writing game was like. He thought his children should stay out. My father was a man of very, very definite ideas. He knew what he wanted each one of us to be. And he wanted us not to be writers. Well, gradually, everyone went as... Just like a magnet, hoping to make a living with a written word. When the bridge came out, the cabler came first, the cabler. The father was pleased, and he patted Thornton the back, and he said, Well, now, dear boy, now the thing is to go on and get a higher degree, and then you can progress in your teaching. Now, it's just fine, and I'm proud of you, but now let's talk about serious things. Bit by bit... They all ended up printed somewhere. The first is my brother, Amos. He has published several volumes of poetry, plus straight theological books. And then comes Thornton. And then comes our sister, Charlotte, who's a professor at Smith, and who wrote two books of poetry. And I had always wanted to be a writer, and I finally did write three novels way back in the 30s, so long ago I'd forgotten about it. And then our younger sister majored in zoology at college. And her fourth year at Mount Holyoke, and she's getting on fine with zoology, she wrote a poem. With trepidation, we showed it to Father. And Father hid his pride by saying, another darn writer in the family. Amos Wilder was a man with very definite ideas. And Thornton, a little boy with very definite ideas. There were... Just a few years, and we had the fairly normal youth. Thorn had already been excited about the theater. And since there wasn't much to be had, either in Berkeley or for us as children that way, uh, then what did you do? You made your own. And Thornton would write little plays for us. Or then he'd sometimes take from a short story and adapt them. And I can remember yards and yards of cheesecloth of every known color. And we'd get draped up in those. Playwright at age nine and a half. Actually, Thornton Wilder at nine and a half was leading quite a cosmopolitan life. For it was then that Amos Wilder went to Hong Kong as United States Consul General. For three years, Thornton lived in the Orient attending a German school in Hong Kong for a while, a missionary school at Shantung, high school in Chifu. In 1914, the family returned to the United States and normalcy. But Thornton was no normal boy. In California, he read Russian authors, and while other youths were trying on Boy Scout uniforms, this shy, skinny boy in knee pants was studying mythology and writing. Vulcan was the god of goldsmith, silversmith, Copper Smith, and Mrs. Smith. He studied, acted, and wrote at Thatcher Prep his way. We were there for a definite purpose of getting those boys into the eastern colleges. So there had to be a pretty uh, hard drill. 
talk of Williamson, the man who tried to teach Thornton how to write. He didn't like the mechanics of writing. Uh, punctuation, capitalization, spelling were details which didn't interest him very much. And uh, he used to hand in compositions uh, that were rather delightful, but I think that uh, I was uh, a fairly inexperienced teacher, and I felt that they weren't really uh, headed towards uh, Yale, where he was going at that moment. And uh, uh, it was also informal, and we had so much fun altogether that I decided I should impress him with this. So one day I sent for him to come to my study... And uh, I said to him, now, Thornton, you've got to learn how to capitalize and spell and punctuate and uh, uh, have some idea of connections between paragraphs and things. And he was always very pleasant. And he smiled and he said, well, I don't know. I, I will always have a stenographer. Of course, he went to Berkeley High School and from there uh, to Oberlin. And... It's my impression that he didn't have to pass any examinations to get into Oberlin. And uh, so all of this punctuation, capitalization, and so on, that I had more or less uh, sweated blood about, uh, didn't matter anymore. And uh, from Oberlin, he uh, went to Yale, and I guess that meant that uh, he didn't pass those examinations. And I don't know that he can now. <laughs> Yale is the school Thornton and his brother, Amos Jr., wanted to attend. No, said Amos Sr. Yale is too worldly after a missionary background in China. You're going to Oberlin. I believe that Thornton had been sent to Oberlin so that he could experience the fine puritanical atmosphere that then flourished there. Classmate Robert Hutchins, later to become president of the University of Chicago. Smoking was prohibited... Dancing was prohibited. Card playing of a very mild kind without gambling was uh, allowed. But it had been allowed only very recently. Nobody had ever heard of alcoholic beverages or imagined that anybody could drink them. Fraternities were forbidden. Ohio State defeated Oberlin 126 to nothing in the fall of 1916 which was our freshman year, because nine of the Oberlin 11 had made the mistake of joining a fraternity. They were immediately expelled. And a professor's son, who was about my age, was found smoking behind the waterworks with Mr. Brethwaite, the engineer. He was immediately expelled. And it was agreed in the community that there was only one thing for that boy to do, and that was to join the Navy. He was no longer fit for polite society. In this atmosphere, uh, Thornton and I started out on our educational career. The United States entered the war. Thornton Wilder entered the Coast Artillery Corps. Rank corporal. While Thornton guarded Narragansett Bay, the Wilders moved to New Haven, a good reason for finally going to Yale. After Yale, it was Italy for Thornton Wilder, a chance to work on his Latin and a course in archaeology at the American Academy in Rome. It was there in Italy where Thornton grasped the time capsule concept while picking at the hills of Rome with an archaeologist's axe. Thornton Wilder learning there's a need for telling people a thousand years from now what it was like in the 20th century. Latin and Italian were the languages that he was concentrating on in Rome, 
But the cable from his father said, Have job for you teaching next year, Lawrenceville, learn French. He did, and in the winter of 1921, Thornton Wilder arrived for his first teaching job at Lawrenceville, a sprawling private school for boys in New Jersey, there to become housemaster and teacher, friend of the students, and friend of Theodore Keller. As a master, uh, Thornton was terribly interested in boys who were perhaps a uh, little out of the ordinary. That is, they were nonconformists. They didn't busy themselves with the smoking imperial cube cuff and using uh, Dunhill pipes, wearing plus fours. They were not athletes. These boys who interested him primarily were the boys who uh, were trying to create uh, literature or music or art. Thornton organized a small group of these boys. They used to meet uh, at infrequent intervals, generally on a Wednesday afternoon. They bought the bags of popcorn or whatever they wanted to munch and walked across the golf links and uh, around the school through the school woods and uh, exchanged ideas. The search for time capsule material goes on. Mr. Keller also remembers a very intent Thornton Wilder, a guy who didn't need shopping lists. Thornton was always testing his memory and thought it was very childish of a person not to be able to go shopping, remembering everything that he needed. A list was uh, just so childish that uh, anyone should be ashamed of it. And he was boasting about this. Well, in those days, to get to Trenton was quite a problem. We had uh, an old trolley line that came to the main street, took a half hour to get into Trenton, five miles away. We called it the Yellow Peril. And it bucked and bucked and jumped around. Finally, much to everybody's surprise, made the trip to Trenton, but it was doubtful often whether it was going to do so. On one of these shopping expeditions, Thornton, without his list, went to Trenton. And when he got into Trenton, couldn't remember his list. And much to his chagrin, he couldn't remember what he wanted. He had no list, so he had to board the next trolley an hour later and return to Lawrenceville. For seven years, Thornton lived with and taught prep students, and in his spare time, wrote. Now the pattern started to take form. The food, his bits of information, fell into place with his interests, and from his typewriter came novels and plays. The Kabbalah was already in circulation. The Kabbalah, a critically accepted novel, but a novel that sold only a few thousand copies. A novel hardly in circulation today. But production had started. After the Kabbalah, there was The Bridge of San Luis Rey, and Thornton Wilder was famous. For this novel, he received the Pulitzer Prize in 1928. The Bridge became a bestseller. In order to give you an idea of the story... We'll give you another side of Thornton Wilder, actor and reader. It was a very hot noon, that fatal noon. And coming around the corner of a hill, Brother Juniper stopped to wipe his forehead and to gaze upon the screen of snowy peaks in the distance. Then into the gorge below him, filled with the dark plumage of green trees and green birds, and traversed by its ladder of osier. Joy was in him. Things were not going badly. He had opened several little abandoned churches, and the Indians were crawling into early mass and groaning at the moment of miracle as though their hearts would break. Perhaps it was the pure air from the souls before him. 
Perhaps it was the memory that brushed him for a moment of the poem that bade him raise his eyes to the helpful hills. At all events, he fell at peace. Then his dad's fell upon the bridge, and at that moment a tiny noise filled the air, as when the string of some musical instrument snaps in a disused room. And he saw the bridge divide and fling five gesticulating ants into the valley below. Anyone else would have said to himself with secret joy, within ten minutes myself. But it was another thought that visited Brother Juniper. Why did this happen to those five? If there were any plan in the universe at all, if there were any pattern in human life, surely it could be discovered mysteriously latent in those lives so suddenly cut off. Either we live by accident and die by accident, or we live by plan and die by plan. And in that instant, Brother Juniper made the resolve to inquire into the secret lives of those five persons, that moment falling through the air, and to surprise the reason of their taking off. And the last paragraph of the book? But soon we shall all die, and all memory of those five will have left the earth, and we ourselves should be loved for a while and forgotten. But the love will have been enough. All those impulses of love return to the love that made them, even memory is not necessary for love. There is a land of the living and a land of the dead. And the bridge is love. The only survival. The only meaning. The Bridge of San Luis Rey. Soon followed collections of short plays and two other novels while Thornton Wilder was teaching creative writing at the University of Chicago. But it was not until 1938 that Wilder really hit his mark. It had been nine years earlier that he first told Broadway producer Jed Harris about our town. Actually, I first met him on a train coming up from Florida in 1928, and it was on that train that we first spoke, and it was on that date that we first discussed the subject of our town. And when Wilder heard that I would be very interested in doing a play without scenery, very much in the style of a one actor he had written called The Happy Journey, he glowed with enthusiasm. He said, oh, if you only would, I would sit right down and write it. I said, that would be wonderful. I'll be waiting for it. And promptly, nine years later to the day, I received the script of our town. And I need hardly add, it was well worth waiting for. Thornton Wilder, keeper of the time capsule, continues after this pause for station identification. In 1938, Our Town gave Thornton Wilder Pulitzer Prize number two. The curtain went down opening night, and someone asked Alexander Wolcott what he thought of it. Answer, I'd rather comment on the 23rd Psalm. The movie Our Town was released in 1940, but although the press hailed the film, the public stayed away. Funny the way the times catch up with Thornton Wilder. NBC set Our Town to music presented it on television. It was a spectacular that was one of the nation's top ten shows in 55, 
And according to the people who rate TV viewing, 11,193,000 families watched Frank Sinatra as the stage manager and heard him introduce a song that was to become number three on the hit parade. It's an illusion. Try, 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 and you will only come to this conclusion. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. Dad was told... Despite the Pulitzer Prize... Despite worldwide acceptance, despite praise of the play, movie, and TV show, there's one city that just would not take to our town. London. Well, Failure did, and it's uh, always a moot point why a play fails. Tyrone Guthrie, director. My own belief is that this came at the wrong moment. We, in London, it came just after the war. We'd had some years of considerable austerity. And what people wanted of the theater was that it should be gay and jolly and bright and take them out of themselves and be an escape. And a place to the better chance of success if it had a lot of nicely dressed women in jewelry and that kind of thing in grand sets and offered some of the luxury which we were denied in real life. Well, the curtain went up on this, and there were black velvet curtains and a lot of homebodies buzzing around in clothes that weren't terribly exciting. And I guess we would have risen above that and gone along with it. But then they began to do and say some things that uh, at that time didn't strike the right chord. For instance, one of the women in the play, very nice lady she was supposed to be, she asked the milkman to leave her four quarts of milk for the next day. Well, for some years, our allowance of milk had been half pint per person per day. So that didn't go very well. That just seemed to sum up something that was dividing us very much from America and from the type of life that was being portrayed and that we resented, rather. And you may think it's very unreasonable, but there it was. That was a moment in history when those differences between our two countries seemed to be very irritating and very rankling. And I think that, more than anything else, accounted for the failure. It wasn't that it wasn't well done. It wasn't that it wasn't a good play. I've seen it since in different parts of this country, done by repertory companies, and it goes great. The audiences love it, and they take it for the fine work of art that it really is. Trouble about London was that this professional production just hit London at the wrong moment. Wilder himself helped write the movie version of Our Town. He also wrote a thriller film directed by Alfred Hitchcock and called... Shadow of a Doubt. Screenwriting. Favorite subject of Mr. Wilder's, and he's got his own ideas on how it should be done. When writing for the, either the screen or radio, one necessarily is restricted, but one must realize that when you assemble an audience of many millions, you are almost bound to strike at a certain level if you wish to be understood. Oh. It is my feeling that the goal which the greater part of all entertainment should seek to achieve is to supply a thing which is great art both to the trained mind and the non-reflective, and that is a very daring thing to attempt. But again, Walt Disney can be pointed to, and Charles Chaplin as well, a satisfying, most exacting mind, and the receptive soul of the folk. I should like to think of writers going far away and writing a movie, and returning when it's completely finished, laying it on one of the great desks for acceptance or refusal. Such a writer should not return until it is in its completed form. 
I feel the story should be born, developed, and finished in one head. As Jed Harris pointed out, as anyone in the theater will tell you, it's a long time between Wilder plays. Thus, it was not until 1942 that the skin of our teeth careened, skidded, screeched, and crashed into Broadway. Skin of our teeth, Pulitzer Prize number three. When it was finally produced, Thornton Wilder, this time Major Thornton Wilder, was in Air Intelligence. Actress Florence Reed will never forget the night he was finally able to see his own play. He managed to wangle a leave to come and be in the audience for one night, which was the Monday night of the first preview. And, of course, as you know, it was the most controversial play probably the theater has ever seen. In my time, I don't remember anything that caused such uh, fisticuffs. If you liked it, and fisticuffs if you didn't like it. I mean that literally. People sitting next to each other in the theater. Say, my goodness, what's that mean? Do you understand it? And then the person sitting next to him might say, oh, what a play, you know? And he'd turn around and say, you know me to tell me you pretend to understand this junk. The other man said, I think it's the most marvelous play I ever sat through in my life. And they'd get in such an argument, they'd end up by talking louder than we were on the stage. Well, this happened to be that kind of an audience. Only they went further. They got so enraged uh, that they got up and walked out and asked for their money back at the box office. And upstairs, in the balcony, some of them tore out the electrolier and threw it on the floor so they had to get the police up there. That kind of thing for the play. At the end of the first act, there was a long pause in the action on the stage. When the children have been pleading with him, telling him how well they did at school so that he'll keep the fire burning so that they can go on living. And in that pause, Freddie March finally turned to the little girl and said, you recited in class today and you didn't miss? Yes, Papa. I didn't, didn't miss. The teacher said I was perfect. All right, build up the fire. That's the way the lines go, do you see? But in that pause, a voice came from the balcony. Man's voice. Out loud, top of his lungs said, Well, I don't care. I think this stinks. There was a roar from the audience, of course. Uh, because it happened to be the kind of a play that no matter what happened, didn't make any difference in the skin of our teeth. It was all taken as part of the script. Because when the curtain came down at the end of the play, uh, some friends of Freddy's came backstage to his dressing room and said, that remark from the balcony was one of the funniest things I ever heard in the play. And when he told them that uh, it wasn't in the play, he like said, for heaven's sake, have it put in. It was the biggest laugh of the evening. But the funniest part of the whole thing was, and the most awful part, poor Thornton. The only time he had ever seen his play played that was the night he was in the audience. <laughs> he came back to my dressing room and he sat down and he just kind of disappeared in the chair. Do you know what I mean? Just crumpled. I said, but darling, tomorrow night we have a different crowd of people coming. Totally different. And they may think it's the most wonderful thing, as we all do. And sure enough, that was quite true. It was quite a different kind of crowd, and they came back saying, oh, this is a play. Oh, what a play. So many funny things happened. 
After the curtain dropped on the first act, by the way, this man in the balcony that had made the first remark, as he got up to leave, <laughs> he said, I don't care, I still say it. <laughs> yes, to put it mildly, the skin of our teeth was controversial. Scenery bounces up and down, players rehearse on stage, and at one point, there is a call to the audience to send along chairs to keep the fire going against the advancing ice age. Daffy, wacky, cockeyed, impudent, wrote some critics. Memorable and brilliant, wrote others. Again, Thornton Wilder, as in our town, looks through his telescope at the life of the family, this time from a thousand miles away. Trouble was synonymous with the skin of our teeth. A month after the play was on the boards, the magazine, The Saturday Review, came out with The Skin of Whose Teeth? The Strange Case of Mr. Wilder's New Play and Finnegan's Wake. The article charged, While thousands cheer, no one has yet pointed out that Mr. Thornton Wilder's exciting play, The Skin of Our Teeth, is not an entirely original creation, but an Americanized recreation thinly disguised of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. It was quite a hassle. Harrison Smith, now president and associate editor of the Saturday Review, recalls that the criticism of the skin of our teeth was pretty severe. In fact, I wrote in an editorial in the Saturday Review some harsh, harsh words about Mr. Anthrobus and his strange companions. And I wound up by saying, but the heart of the problem lies in Mr. Wilder's bosom. Does he take his play seriously himself, or did it merely entertain him to dip into Finnegan's wake, spread it over three acts, and sit back and see what would happen? I seriously believed this, and so that years later it was astonishing and rather delightful indeed to discover that this had become a famous play. We received a mass of letters for our personal columns in the Saturday Review, partly due to my own comments and our critics' comments on the play, and partly to the fact that uh, people had seen the play themselves and either agreed or violently disagreed with what we had to say. One man attempted to put it into verse. The right and the wrong of sin and skin have raised a din of angry voices, while blissfully exempt of sin, Wilder, withal, rejoices. And you, Florence Reed, what do you think of the skin of our teeth controversy? I think that was all bills and nonsense and tripe. I don't think... Thornton Wilder is completely incapable, and he doesn't have to take any ideas from uh, Mr. Joyce. Nor Mr. Smith, nor Mr. Brown, nor Mr. Jones. In 1955, the skin of our teeth also came back, and once again the times caught up with Wilder. The play went to Europe as our cultural salute to France. We turned to New York to play to packed orderly houses. Critics raved, and it went on NBC television. The specialists say 10,847,000 families watched it. All this fuss kind of disturbs Thornton Wilder, a modest man who doesn't like to stick out in a crowd. There's the time Thornton Wilder was invited to a University of Chicago party. I met uh, Thornton Wilder first at a tea party at uh, Harriet Monroe's poetry office. Again, Professor Elder Olson. I still remember it because it amused me. Uh, something rather odd happened. Uh, Thornton Wilder's uh, face was not at that time too well known, and uh, there was a very distinguished-looking gentleman present who turned out to be a husband of one of the guests. 
It was assumed that this distinguished-looking person was Thornton Wilder, and as a consequence, he attracted the whole crowd. I myself noticed a rather nervous and energetic person going about in the office and looking at one picture after another. And on talking to him, I discovered that he was Thornton Wilder. And Thornton is too busy to worry about clothes, a problem that Sister Isabel has to wrestle with. Well, Thornton doesn't give much attention to what he wears. Uh, under pressure, he gets a new suit every so often. He's less uh, interested, still less interested, in his hats and his overcoats. Since the bridge of Sanderwich Ray came out in 1928, he's had four of them. Well, when he was on number two of these overcoats, it was well along in the Depression. And one night, uh, we'd been to a theater, and we're coming along 44th Street, almost to 5th Avenue. Gordon had been much interested in the play, and he was talking the way he does, with his hands and plunging along, hands in pocket, and this coat flying behind him. I was on the curb side, and we passed a man standing there begging, and he said, can I have a dime for a cup of coffee? Well, I didn't realize Thornton hadn't heard him, because I was just shocked that he wasn't giving him two dimes. But as I say, he was talking fast. After we passed the man, even a few feet beyond him, I still could hear, he said, well, you might at least get yourself a new overcoat. So it's quite likely he will stand at the rostrum in a wrinkled suit, but the audience doesn't have time to analyze his wardrobe. For Wilder, as Robert Hutchins puts it, is a lecturer of the most spectacular sort. A Wilder lecture at the University of Chicago was quite a show. Thornton flinging his arms about, jumping from the platform, walking around the room, talking a mile a minute. And at Lawrenceville, the school as a whole felt the impact of his presence Best in the chapel. Another side of Thornton Wilder. Theodore Keller, the reporter. Masters take turns conducting daily chapel. When it was Mr. Wilder's turn, it seemed always that he had it to do during Holy Week. And his reading of the Bible, using the biblical passages applicable to that period, was one of the most forceful, dramatic, vigorous, understanding readings that I've ever heard anybody do. And now Mrs. Keller on Wilder's nemesis. He used to come back every year and give a talk to our local women's club, and it was very disappointing and not Thornton at all. He had a great deal of self-consciousness about... The only time I ever saw him self-conscious was when he faced a group of women and tried to say something that would be worth saying and that they also could understand... The question is asked over and over again. Thornton, why don't you write more? Mr. Wilder is accused of lack of industry, of struggling through his maze of distractions, such as his present project, the monumental task of dating the plays of Lope de Vega. And he'll admit there are about 30 persons in the world who are interested. But Wilder will tell you that without his distractions, without his trips abroad, without his morning walks, without his bits of information, there's no Thornton Wilder. Not that this intellectual curiosity of Thornton Wilder's doesn't backfire. One of the great difficulties for Thornton is to find some place to work in. Producer Jed Harris. 
It might be in a small hotel in Newport. It might be at a motel outside of Key West. It might be a village in Mexico. One of his great problems is to go somewhere where he is not known. And he desperately seeks peace and anonymity. For example, a couple of years ago, I think he retired to a town in Germany called, I believe, Wasserfogel, and found at last the peacefulness and order, the simplicity, which could work. Unfortunately, as very often happens to Thornton, no matter how small a town in Europe he goes to, there is a local theater. Soon he finds himself going to the theater every night. At the end of two weeks, he has somehow managed to learn the history of the local theater since 1880. Soon, in some fashion, he finds himself going to the cafe frequented by the actors. And as a gesture, he finds himself sending a bottle of wine to one of the members of the company for a very fine performance that evening. At once, somebody leaps up from the table occupied by the actors and approaches the table to thank the donor for the wine. The donor then says, Was ist bitte Ihr Name? Wilder lowers his eyes and says very shyly, Wilder, the young man looks at him and says, Nicht Taunton, Wilder. Mr. Wilder shyly acknowledges that it is he. The result is he no longer can work in that town as he is now completely occupied with the company playing the theater in Wasserfogel and has compiled long histories of all their performances and where they came from and where they served their apprenticeship. And very soon I will hear either by letter or perhaps from his sister Isabel that Wasserfogel turned out after all not to be a very suitable place to work in as the atmosphere was too distracting. From Wasserfogel, more material to be put aside for the capsule. If you're going to worry about Thornton Wilder's time, better not add up his walking time. Sometimes these walks last an hour, sometimes two hours, sometimes two and a half weeks. Many years ago, he walked through France with Jean Tunney. Starting point, Vichy. Destination, Rome. It was one of the most interesting things I've ever done in my life. Thornton is a highly educated person, a man of great scholarship, and a man of great athletic capacity, believe it or not. He can climb a mountain about as fast as anybody I ever saw. And as for walking on the level, 12, 13, 14 miles a day is nothing to him. Thornton was tireless, actually. And the only way that I could outspeed Thornton was coming down a mountainside. I can run down mountains. He had to take it easy because the hinges on his knees were not quite as flexible as mine. But going up, he could lead me. Another thing, uh, Thornton could out-eat me, which is a very strange thing. He used to eat four or five times a day. We were on that walking trip about two and a half weeks. 
maybe three weeks. We visited many places, and while in Paris, Thornton walked me around to the left bank to meet a young rising author. I'll never forget his prediction. He said, this man is going to be great. And that was Ernest Hemingway. Also time-consuming, Thornton's friends. Well, in my case, I'm a... Uh... Uh, sort of a, a writer. I, that's not my profession. This would only be a, a vocation. I'm in the haberdashery business. Norman Unger of the Bronx. And I have been collecting Thornton Wilder's books. Once I came in the store and I was told there was a special edition of The Bridge of St. Louis Ray, which would cost me $125. I purchased the book. I wanted to have it autographed. I wrote to Mr. Wilder and asked him to have the book autographed. So he told me that whenever he was in New York, he would contact me and have the book autographed. At first, when he meets you, he always wants to know everything about you. He lets you talk. But later, you don't stand a chance. He does the talking. We had dinner, Mr. Wilder, my wife, and myself. And uh, we became friendly and... and seeing him, writing to him, and we have been friends ever since. Whenever he comes to New York, he usually calls me at the store, and uh, we make an appointment, and uh, usually see each other. But what about your audience, Thornton? Aren't you worried about keeping them waiting during the search for information? Thornton Wilder will say he's not concerned. He worries about neither approval nor disapproval. Ross Parmenter music editor of the New York Times, asked him about that. He talked about how much a writer should pay attention to what other people said about his work. And his feeling was that he should write trying to keep his mind free of the thought of whether there was disapproval or approval in the mind of any audience. He said, I remember, I feel that for good or ill... You should talk to yourself in your own private language and be willing to sink or swim in the hope that your private language has nevertheless sufficient correspondences with that of persons of some reading and some experience. And he talked about the problem of living the literary life in New York. And he said that here it was difficult because there was quite a lot of backbiting and chit-chatting and uh, he described, for instance, a cocktail party. And I remember how he mimicked the type of gossip that went on. And he put his fingers to his face and he was saying how somebody would say, so-and-so is slipping, he said, just the way a gossip would whisper in a cocktail party. The 1955-1956 season, a banner one for Thornton Wilder. Our town went on TV, the skin of our teeth went to Europe, came back to New York and into millions of homes across the country... And Thornton Wilder had another hit on Broadway, The Matchmaker, starring, by the way, Ruth Gordon, my wife. In 1939, The Matchmaker, then The Merchant of Yonkers, stayed at the Guild Theater for all of 39 performances. But Wilder rewrote this story about a marriage broker, and Broadway audiences are able to see still another phase of the versatile Mr. Wilder, now author of a hilarious farce. Thus, Thornton Wilder has given us a warm play about Anywhere USA, a spectacular play with shaky scenery, 
and the rollicking matchmaker. Thornton Wilder, who can speak fluent French, German, Spanish, and Italian. Thornton Wilder, who insists he will write what he wishes and when he wishes. Thornton Wilder, who has another play, The Emporium, up his sleeve, and a full-length opera at his fingertips. Thornton Wilder, who for relaxation dates the work of an obscure playwright who studies Bach. Thornton Wilder, Roosevelt Democrat, Eisenhower Republican. Thornton Wilder, bachelor and congregationalist, who loves to live and loves people. Thornton Wilder, who tries to live a civilization in a lifetime. Thornton Wilder, who wants on his tombstone, here lies a man who tried to be obliging. Thornton Wilder, keeper of the time capsule. Our town, Act Three. Now, there's some things you all know, as well as I do, but you don't take them out often. Look at them. We all know that something in the world is eternal. It ain't houses. It ain't names. It ain't earth. It ain't even the star. Everybody knows in their bones that something in the world is eternal, and that something has to do with human beings. All the greatest people live have been telling us that for 5,000 years, but you'd be surprised how people lose hold of it. There's something way down deep that's eternal about every human being. And you know, I think the dead don't stay interested in us living people very long. Gradually, gradually, they lose hold of the earth and the ambitions they had and the pleasures they had and the things they suffered. They get weaned away. That's the way I put it, weaned away. And while they stay here, the, the earth part of them burns out, burns through. And all that time, they slowly get indifferent to what's going on in Grover's Corner. They're waiting. They're waiting for something they feel is coming, something important and great. Aren't they waiting for the eternal part of them to come out clear? Now, some of the things they say, maybe you'll hurt your feelings. But surely that's the way it is. Mother and daughter. Husband and wife. Enemy and enemy. Money and miser. All those terribly important things kind of grow pale around you. And what's left? What's left when memory is gone? And your identity? Walton Wilder, keeper of the time capsule. Your narrator has been playwright Garson Kanan. Mr. Wilder's readings from the Harvard University Library. Thornton Wilder, keeper of the time capsule, written and edited by Jerome Jacobs, was produced by NBC News. Sinclair. Let's take a second or two for a fast look at a team of all stars, 15 of them all told. What kind of a team is it? Well, it's just about one of the most important in the world right now. Of course, I'm talking about the International Alliance, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. 
NATO's mighty important when it comes to protecting the free nations of the world, and that's why it's called the Shield of Freedom. NATO is guarding your freedom. Biographies and Sound has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Thank you.